Do you think God is someone to be afraid of? Today, we're invited into a scene in the Bible of absolute terror. God has come down to speak to the Israelites on Mount Sinai, come down to lay down his law, to tell his redeemed people how they must live as people who belong to him. So open up your Bibles to Exodus 19 through 24, because here we discover a God who inspires great fear, but we also discover why we don't have to be afraid. Most of us know what it's like to be shocked or surprised so that we scream out in fear. But do you know what it's like to be truly gripped by fear? Have you ever been convinced that you are about to die? I can remember only one time when I truly thought I was going to die. Our family had flown in my dad's little four-seat airplane to Phoenix, Arizona for a family reunion. And we took off from the airport to fly home, and as we headed over the mountains, clouds seemed to appear from nowhere and everywhere, closing in around us. And I think maybe the reason I was so afraid was that it appeared to me that my dad, who was a very experienced and confident pilot, was a bit unnerved. He tried getting around the clouds, above the clouds, and nothing was working. I remember sitting in the back seat and having what I thought might be my last conversation with God in this life. I told him that I was ready to meet him, and honestly, I thought I was going to. But my dad was able to turn around safely, and we flew back to Phoenix. I'd never been so relieved to feel the wheels of that little plane touch down on a runway. I remember getting off the plane and going into the bathroom and bursting into tears of relief. As we come today to Exodus 19 through 24, we enter into a scene of absolute terror in which the people of Israel thought they might die. And indeed, they had every right to be afraid. God had come down, and his presence on the mountain was terrifying. I'm not sure we get very nervous today, at the idea of being in the presence of God, perhaps our vision of God is too tame to ever instill fear. Some of us see God more like a cuddly pushover grandpa than like a demanding judge, or more like a congenial Santa than like a consuming fire. We've come to think of God as someone we can casually consider and skeptically poke at, a deity we can design to our liking. But when we see him as he is, we can't help but recognize that God is dangerous. Don't let anyone convince you otherwise. Like the guy said in the oft-quoted movie line, be afraid, be very afraid. Three months after emerging from Egypt and crossing the Red Sea, the Israelites reached the mountain of God, the place about which God had told Moses when you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Moses went up the mountain to meet with God and then came back down to prepare the people of Israel to hear God speak to them. God was about to come down on Mount Sinai, but they were warned not to approach or even touch the edge of the mountain or they would die. It was as if yellow police tape roped off the base of the mountain, and large keep-out signs were posted all around it. 
Everything about this scene shouted danger. Three days later, a thick cloud came down and shrouded the mountain with crashing thunder and explosive lightning. Moses had led the people to the very place where God had spoken to him from the flaming bush. But this time, it wasn't just a bush that was on fire. The whole mountain was on fire. The whole mountain shook so that rocks split and tumbled down. The sound of a trumpet grew louder and louder. But most dreadful was the sound of the voice of the living God, so penetrating and powerful that all the people in the camp trembled. We kind of need Steven Spielberg's special effects department, or at least an energized imagination, to help us picture this scene in a way that comes anywhere near what the people of Israel must have seen, and to sense the fear they must have felt. Moses writes about it in Exodus 20. Look in Exodus 20, starting in verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. To hear God's voice directly was terrifying. So they wanted Moses to listen for them so they wouldn't have to. Now, why would God have come down in such a terrifying way? Was he trying to scare them? No, God was merely being himself. This is who God is. This is the reality of his presence. And they needed to know who they were dealing with as he was about to spell out the terms of his relationship with them making a costly claim on their lives. When God began speaking at Mount Sinai, he began by describing what he's like, evidenced by what he had done. Look back in chapter 19, verses 3 and 4. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. This wasn't just anybody about to lay down the law. This was their redeemer, who had crushed their enemies even as he drew them close to himself. So first he told them who he was and what he had done. And then he told them who they were to be and what they were to do. Look in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Clearly, God did not say, if you will obey me, you can enjoy relationship with me. He said, because I have brought you into a relationship with me, here is how you are to respond to my grace. My grace shown to you has made a claim upon you. So we see that the Ten Commandments he's about to give them are not an abstract code of duty hung in a relational void, but they're the heartbeat of his covenant relationship with his people, his treasured possession. The law was given to those who had been saved by grace in order to show them how to live in that grace. While the all-important gospel words found in the opening statement of the Ten Commandments 
are left out of most artistic depictions of two stone tablets, it is in them that we see the grace of the law of Moses. Look in Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Using his special covenant name, Yahweh, he told the people not simply that he is the one true God over all the universe, but rather, I am the Lord your God, indicating a personal saving relationship. The basis for his laying down his law for their lives was that he was their God and Redeemer. And my believing friend, this is the basis on which God calls you to obedience. If he is your God and Redeemer, he has a legal claim over your life. He doesn't come telling you to obey so that you can belong to him. Rather, he comes to you in grace and mercy to bring you out of your bondage to sin by his mighty power. It's on the basis of that saving relationship that you are subject to his covenant law. Have you come to the place where you have seen that God's law is his grace toward you? Now, maybe that doesn't sound right to you. Perhaps it seems that God's unbending law handed down at Sinai has nothing to do with grace and everything to do with meaningless religious ritual or impossible to live by rules. You need to see that it is God's grace to us to reveal his divine nature, which we see in his law. It is his grace to us that he is willing to show us how to live in this world in rich relationship with him and with each other. It is his grace that holds up a mirror before us so that we can see the extent of our sinfulness. Until we look into that mirror and see how far we've fallen short of God's righteous standard, we will never see our need for a savior. God's exercise of grace is not that he relaxes his demand for full obedience to his law. His grace is shown in opening our eyes to see our desperate need for one who obeyed God's commands fully in our stead. Martin Luther put it this way. He wrote, after the law has humbled, terrified, and completely crushed you so that you are on the brink of despair, then see to it that you know how to use the law correctly, for its function and use is not only to disclose the sin and wrath of God, but also to drive us to Christ. The law was intended to make the people of God long for the coming of Christ. As the people of God placed their hopes, not in their own goodness, but in God's promise. They were saved by grace through faith in the Savior who would come, just as we are saved by grace through faith in the Savior who has come. They looked forward in faith and were given life. We look backward in faith and are given life. So the law's demands reveal our need for Christ. In addition, the very content of the Ten Commandments points us to Christ. He's the one who did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. Why did God forbid the making of images for worship? In time, he was going to send Jesus 
who was the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the only image of God worthy of worship. Why was God so zealous for his holy name to be honored? God intended to exalt the name of Jesus above every name. His will be the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Why are we to keep the Sabbath? The Sabbath points us to Christ in whom we find ultimate and eternal rest. Why should we keep our marriage vows? This will picture the faithfulness of our bridegroom, Jesus, who will make us his pure bride. In his gospel, John writes that the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We might assume that John is contrasting two mutually exclusive realities, the law of God revealed at Sinai and the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ. However, John does not say the law was given through Moses but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, as if he's contrasting two opposite realities, though it is rendered this way in some translations. Instead, he's helping us to grasp a greater revelation, a glorious development in redemptive history. Whereas grace was given when the law was given through Moses, John is telling us that now grace has come in the Word made flesh. It's not that grace has now replaced the law, but that a grace greater than that which was given in the law of Moses has been given in Jesus Christ. There was a grace in the law, and Jesus came to fulfill the law. So we know that the law is good. What then do we do with the fact that in several places in the New Testament, we read things that seem on the surface to suggest that God's law is not good? or that it no longer applies? Well, first, we have to understand that the Jews of Jesus' day had misunderstood the originally gracious Sinai covenant and perverted it into a covenant of works resulting in bondage. Sometimes when we read disparaging comments on the law in the New Testament, it's not the law that is the problem, but the misuse of the law by false teachers, the law being used for a purpose for which it was never intended. Another reason the New Testament talks about the law in different ways is because there were several different kinds of law, along with the moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments found in Exodus 20. God also gave Moses the Book of the Covenant, the civil and ceremonial law found in Exodus 20 through 23. Israel was not just a family, but a nation that needed laws to live by. God's people had begun with one man, Abraham, whom God chose from all the people of the earth to be the father of many descendants. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, went into Egypt and his family multiplied into a huge slave labor force. But now they were much more than a family. Now they were a nation preparing to enter into the land God would give them. The Book of the Covenant provided a series of legal precedents that illustrated basic legal principles for living as a community, as the people of God. It provided guidance on how the state needed to operate, how it would wage war with its enemies, and how it should look after the land and take care of the poor and so on. The Book of the Covenant also contained the ceremonial law, 
which provided regulations for Sabbaths, feasts, festivals, and sacrifices. And since this ceremonial law was given in the same breath as the Ten Commandments, it's clear that God knew the people would not be able to keep his commandments perfectly and would need a provision for their sin. The sacrifices were effective, not in atoning for sin, but in pointing toward the once-for-all atoning work of Christ. Only the Ten Commandments were written on tablets of stone by the finger of God. They were written in stone because they would remain in effect for as long as time endures. But the ordinances of the Book of the Covenant were written on parchment by the pen of Moses, implying that they don't have that same eternal force. When Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law, it meant that the people of God were no longer required to offer sacrifices in the temple. The sacrifice of Christ fulfilled all that was required. The civil law expired because the people of God are no longer a national entity, but instead are made up of people from every tribe and nation of the earth who place their faith in Christ alone. Our king is Jesus, and his kingdom is not of this world. So the ceremonial laws pointed forward to the cross of Christ, which would bring them to fulfillment and therefore make them obsolete. And the civil laws pointed toward the kingdom of Christ, which has now been established. So they're also obsolete. After Christ came, the civil and ceremonial law were set aside, which is why the New Testament sometimes seems so dismissive of the law. The New Testament makes it clear that we're no longer under law, but it doesn't declare an end to God's moral law as the standard for our lives. Jesus commands us to keep the law, not as a way of getting right with God, but as a way of pleasing the God who has made us right with him. In fact, according to Jesus, there is no love for him apart from keeping his commandments. We are kidding ourselves. If we think of ourselves of having an intimate relationship with Christ, yet we refuse to see our religious hypocrisy, our refusal to rest, our persistent coveting, our belittling of our parents, our twisting the truth, all these breaking the Ten Commandments. If we refuse to see that as an ongoing offense to God, we have no real relationship with Christ. Can you see that the way God intends for us to enjoy communion with him is by keeping his commandments. This is why the law is an expression of his grace. As you refuse to allow anything else to be God to you, as you honor his name and honor his day and honor your parents, as you value life and live with your spouse in faithfulness and nurture contentment and integrity, this is not legalism. This is the grace of God at work in you, making you holy and happy in God. Obedience to the law from a willing spirit is made possible by the Holy Spirit. It's the proper response to free grace. If the Israelites were frightened by the clouds, fire, 
thunder, and voice of God when God first came down on the mountain. Once they heard his law, they really began to tremble in fear. God was demanding total allegiance in every aspect of their lives, what they loved and valued, how they used their time, how they related to their parents and their society, how they conducted their sex and thought lives. Evidently, their fear generated a quick and perhaps rash response. Look at Exodus 24, 3, where we read how they responded. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We want to tell them to think this through before they commit. But of course, we're not standing in the presence of a flaming, shaking mountain. God's requirement was perfect obedience. And they bound themselves by their promise to keep his whole law. But they couldn't do it. In fact, less than 40 days after the Israelites made this commitment to obey God's commandment, to have no other gods and make no idols, they stood pitching their gold jewelry into the smelting pot to become part of the golden calf. But we can't be too quick to point our fingers, can we? Because we are people who bow before other gods, such as our investment portfolios and other people's opinions. We take Christ's name, calling ourselves Christians, and then act completely unchristlike when we don't get the service we think we ought to get in a restaurant or store. We inundate ourselves with entertainment that normalizes sex outside of the covenant of marriage. We borrow things from people that we never intend to return. We shade the truth in our version of events to make ourselves look good at someone else's expense. We covet the better cars in the carpool line and the better figures and physiques in magazines and the more attractive or attentive spouses of others. We are lawbreakers. And fortunately, Jesus can do for us what the law could not do. He can save us from ourselves. Jesus loves lawbreakers. He loves us so much that he doesn't leave us that way. He fills us with his spirit who writes God's law on our hearts, giving us the want to, to obey. When we come to Christ, he gives the law, which once drove us to him back to us, so that now we can pursue obedience to the Ten Commandments, not because we have to, but because we get to. The grace of God at work in us gives us the power to obey. We can worship God wholeheartedly and take his name upon ourselves with integrity because Christ liberates us from our slavery to other gods. Our security in Christ frees us to enjoy his Sabbath rest. He fills our hearts with the same love he has for his Father so that we can honor our parents. He fills us with his very own faithfulness so that we can live in sexual purity. He convinces us of all that is ours in him that will last forever 
so that we can stop coveting the things other people have that will not last beyond this life. We've read in chapter 19 that the Israelites agreed to accept the terms of the covenant. And in chapters 20 through 23, the terms of the covenant have been written out. He invites us in to the ratification ceremony for the covenant, a service of worship at the mountain of God. Look in Exodus 24, beginning in verse 4. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses repeated the commands of the Lord, and the people repeated their promise to obey. And if they could have obeyed perfectly, the service would have ended there. But of course, God knew they were unable to obey fully. So Moses offered sacrifices at the foot of Mount Sinai and sprinkled the blood on the people. The blood put the covenant into effect. It showed his people how serious he was in demanding obedience to his law, a vivid reminder that their obedience was a matter of life or death. For many people, God is a kindly fellow who winks at indiscretion and goes soft on following through with promised punishments. But that's clearly not the God of the Bible. God is pure and holy, and he demands perfection. If someone has told you that God accepts you just the way you are, don't believe it. It isn't true. The day will come when each of us will stand before God, this God who is a consuming fire. And if you're planning to face that day on your own as you are, presenting your own record of goodness, quite certain that God will grade on a curve, you should be afraid. Be very afraid. But there is a way to come before this dangerous God without fear. You don't have to face God at Mount Sinai. You can go to a different mountain, Mount Zion. The prophets often depicted the restoration of Zion or the city of Jerusalem as the manifestation of the kingdom of God. But earthly Jerusalem is really a symbol for the true and heavenly city of God. Zion is where Jesus reigns now at the right hand of God and where we come by faith in the gospel. Look at Hebrews 12, where we read about coming to Mount Zion, beginning in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Skip down to verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, 
the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Mount Sinai was dark and stormy, but Mount Zion is a city of bright and shining joy. Mount Sinai was a dangerous place that inspired fear. Mount Zion is a peaceful place of perfect safety. At Mount Sinai, the angels blazed with fire and blasted with noise. But at Mount Zion, the angels host a great celebration. While God repeatedly warned the people to stay away from Mount Sinai, he repeatedly invites us to draw near to him at Mount Zion. How can this be? Is it because at Mount Sinai we have the harsh, scary God of the Old Testament and in Hebrews we discover the soft and sentimental God of the New Testament? No, not at all. The difference is not in God himself. He is present and the same on both mountains, ablaze in holiness and abundant in mercy. The difference is in the mediator. To come to Mount Zion is to approach God as one who has been made right with him through the finished work of Christ. Because of Christ, we can approach God with nothing to fear and everything to gain. In his terrifying presence at Mount Sinai, God repeatedly warned the people not to come near. If they had touched the mountain in their sinful state, they would have died instantly. But if you have been joined by faith to Christ, you don't have to be afraid of drawing near to God at Mount Zion. In fact, you're invited, even urged, to draw near rather than stay away. And rather than a terrifying presence, you will find an approachable person. Hebrews 4 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why can you dare approach? It's not because you have been sprinkled with the blood of an animal, but because you have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. His blood has cleansed you and marked you so that you don't have to be afraid of drawing near. To the Israelites at Mount Sinai, the law was a mirror that revealed their sin, an indictment that convicted them, an obligation set before them that they simply couldn't meet. But we come to Mount Zion and find not only a sin-revealing law, but a law-fulfilling Savior. This is exactly what Jesus said he came to do when he stood on a mountain and reaffirmed the law given at Mount Sinai. In the Sermon on the Mount, we hear Jesus pressing in on the inner nature of the moral law, increasing rather than diminishing its demands, making us even more aware of our need for him. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. But how can we be pure in heart without the blood of Christ to wash our hearts clean? Jesus said that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. But how can our righteousness ever exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees 
if Christ's righteousness is not imputed to us. Jesus told us to pray for God to forgive our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, but how can we find the footing to forgive without experiencing the generous forgiveness we have received through Christ? Jesus said our giving to the needy should be done in secret, but how can we give anything away unless we really do believe that Christ will one day share with us all that he stands to inherit. Jesus told us to enter by the narrow gate instead of the easy, wide way that leads to destruction. But how can we enter into the narrow gate that leads to life if Christ does not show us the way? Anyone who tells you they live by the Sermon on the Mount clearly has not read it. This sermon forces us to our knees to say, I can't do it. It leads us to turn to the one who fulfilled every letter of it to ask him to transfer to us his perfect record of obedience in exchange for our record of wrong. So while it is true that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it's also true that you have been justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You don't have to be afraid of falling short. While those who stood at Mount Sinai wanted to obey and pledged to obey all that God commanded, there was a problem. They didn't have the power to obey. And it would seem that there was no hope. Yet hope is found in Christ. In Romans 8, 3 and 4, we read, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The obedience promised by the people at Mount Sinai was a failure. But all of our failure is forgiven because of the promised one's perfect obedience. His perfect obedience met the righteous requirement of the law so that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you don't have to be afraid of sin's power to condemn you or control you. The old covenant at Mount Sinai was a blood covenant. From the very beginning, that blood pointed toward a holy sufficient, once-for-all sacrifice. And on the night before that final sacrifice was offered, Jesus said to his disciples, gathered in the upper room, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. My friends, God does not demand your blood to pay for your sins. He offers his own. And therefore, you don't have to be afraid of sin's penalty. All of those who believe that God will invite them into his holy home because they have been a good person, at least better than most people they know, intend to approach this dangerous God on the basis of what they have done. They foolishly intend to meet with God at Mount Sinai and present him with their record of goodness, which they will discover quickly will not be good enough. 
but those who come to Mount Zion based not on what they have done, but what Christ has done, have no cause for fear. My dad's little airplane is now for sale, and I ride on commercial airliners that have sophisticated systems that guide pilots safely through clouds that come down on the mountains. But perhaps there will come a day, again, when I find myself sitting on one of those airplanes having what I think will be my final conversation with God in this life. And if that day comes, I won't have to be afraid. Because I have come to Mount Zion. And when this life ends, I will open my eyes in the heavenly Jerusalem, surrounded by innumerable angels in celebration. I'll be surrounded by the spirits of the righteous made perfect those in Moses' day who put their faith in the coming Savior, and those from Jesus' day who bowed to him in belief, and those throughout all the centuries who have fled from the ultimate terror of Mount Sinai to the eternal security of Mount Zion. There we will see God. We will eat and drink in the eternal wedding supper of the Lamb. And we will never have to be afraid again.